I'm flying solo for this episode of Lura Roots, so why not start with a confession? I have a weakness for journalism movies. All of them. From Citizen Kane to All the President's Men to The Spotlight and The Post. Any journalism movie worth its salt has that one unavoidable scene. After all the investigations and newsroom debates, after all the conflicts and threats have been made and exhausted, the decision is made to go to the press. It's been rattling. Run it. Yes, sir. Start it up. That scene, when the press starts rolling and the newspapers are coming off the press and they're still hot, the journalists and the pressmen are standing there with a fresh copy in their hands, admiring their work. That scene, when the bad guys are going to finally get exposed, it gets me every single time and I get a little bit teary-eyed. Today, we are going to talk about rural media. I am Boyan Fierst and you are listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. As I said, I'm flying solo this episode, so bear with me. I'm going to tell you three stories today. First, we are going to visit a newsroom in town of Blight in southern Ontario. Then we are going to visit a co-op radio station in Nelson, BC, and we are going to talk to two scholars studying journalism and media on small islands of Aruba and Curaçao in the Caribbean. The first stop we are going to make is Blight, Ontario, the home of the citizen. I had the fortune to visit Blight in 2016 for the Rural Talks to Rural conference, where the editor and I participated on one of the panels. So I'm Sean Lachlan. I'm the editor of uh, The Citizen uh, here in Blythe, the home of the uh, Rural Talks to Rural Conference. Um, The Citizen is a community-owned newspaper um, owned by community shareholders, and um, it's just over 30 years old. Anybody who knows anything about Canadian media industry also knows that small community papers are disappearing from small towns across the country. That was the story of Blythe. Now, how that works is um, in, uh, in the 80s, when The Citizen was formed, um, there, were, there was Blythe and then an adjacent community, and they both had their own newspaper, and it was getting to the point where um, these little communities couldn't sustain their own newspaper, so they closed, and um, the area was underserviced, and people wanted their news reported. So um, a couple of local, local uh, fundraisers um, got together with Keith Rolston, who's our publisher today, um, local journalism, um, you know, icon, and, um, and, you know, hatched this idea of a community-owned newspaper. So they went out and they got interest from the community and people bought shares. Um, an interesting aspect of that that I actually didn't mention at the R2R conference is that they, there was such an interest and they did such a good job of fundraising that they sold so many shares that it was covered by uh, a national newspaper, I think it was the Globe and Mail at the time, uh, this unique model of how to build a newspaper from scratch. And because it got picked up by the Globe and Mail, all the people who I guess maybe weren't supposed to take notice did. And we had actually sold too many shares 
because there's a limit. And then so if you sell too many shares, you have to be listed on the stock exchange. So we actually had to give money back at that time, which of course would have killed our fundraiser people. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so we, we sold to people and there was just this need, this urge to have coverage like that. And so now today we still have our shareholders and we, you know, we're, we're responsible to them. Now the paper is the community on paper and at the end of the year, shareholders got share of the profits that's right yeah we still have uh we have our shareholders meetings and we have board of directors so these are people who literally they're business leaders members of the community who own shares and they meet and we kind of go over things with them how things are going um you know personnel moves if there are any and um yeah they get a share of the profits at the end of the year so what has it been like to work in that kind of ownership structure because it's very different from the what's now norm in Canadian media. Yeah, because it's the only job I have, it's it's the only experience I have and I I wouldn't change it for anything because it's it's um it's been great. Um you go out on the street and you see shareholders and they compliment you on that you're doing a good job and and uh they're just very supportive of what the newspaper's doing. They don't they want a good newspaper. They don't want a big fat check at the end of the year. So it's really nice to have those kinds of relationships with people on the street, people you know, people you know to see. So so when you decide you're a weekly paper, when you decide to, you know, when you plan your paper for the week, what kind of stories are you looking for? Um, we certainly have uh, some baseline coverage that we that we make a point of doing. We've got um, four, five municipal councils that we cover. You know, we got people need to know what's going on in their government, what's happening as far as that's concerned, things like crime. Um, but really, we just it, it's about being connected to the community, and that goes back to having community shareholders. So we're out, and we we find out who's doing something interesting in the community, and it's about telling people stories. And that's been a, a real commitment since Keith began the newspaper in the 80s, was it wasn't just going to be about telling hard news. You want to tell the stories of the people and what they're doing, their successes. And um, and that is really where we, I think, see some of our biggest returns as far as uh, compliments, readership, things like that. People like to read about their neighbors, pe- people that they know. Uh, we've got uh, we've got two full time reporters, but then of course we we've got a, a nice stable of um, of freelancers and uh, community correspondents, and these people um, just like our community shareholders, they're not driven by profits or anything like that. They don't get paid very much. They just do it because they want to help out the citizen, and you know have the stories from their communities told in the citizen. They're certainly not doing it for the paycheck, um, which you know many of us in the media aren't. In many ways. It's the old story of, um, you know, your biggest challenge being your biggest advantage. So because we don't have a parent company with copy to fall back on, we have to, we're forced to go out and find our own stories. And, you know, that extra work, digging around, talking to people is where we find some of our most interesting stories. We often say here at the newsroom, uh, you know, on on a Wednesday, our weeks go kind of Wednesday to Tuesday. Um, on a Wednesday, we'll look at what's going on and we'll have no idea what we're going to have in the next week's issue. And, but then by the following Tuesday, it'll turn out to be one of our better issues of the year because we were forced to get out there and dig for things and not just sit back and let stories come to us. How do you deal, given that you're so embedded in the community, every community occasionally has a difficult issue to deal with, how, that, how does that play out? 
Um, well, if it's a controversial issue or if it's something difficult and you have community shareholders and there are some who are on one side of that issue, others who are on the other side of that right. issue, whatever it is, right? right? How does that play out in the paper and how does it play out on the street? Right. I can honestly say that in, in my time here, I've never been cornered by whether it be a shareholder or an advertiser um, in regards to our coverage. You know, they ha- they have never given us a hard time over something that maybe has made them look bad or um, or whatever. But, um, you know, th- there are discussions, you know, there are certainly discussions that happen on the street. And, you know, it's always a free flowing exchange of opinions and ideas. But at the end of the day, they always know that we're doing our job. So, I mean, if there's coverage that's perceived to be unfair, again, I haven't incur- in, uh, encountered anything like that. But if there's an coverage that uh, is perceived to be unfair, we'll certainly hear about it. But we've never had anybody try to, um, I guess, pull rank would be a term. Uh, Never had that happen to us. I think there's a good understanding between us and the community. And it would actually be hard to do that because it's the entire community that owns the newspaper, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's it's not one big person who owns a newspaper. It'd be a it'd be a group of folks. So if there was one, I feel like, and again, this hasn't happened, but I feel like the other shareholders would maybe try to bring that person down to earth and kind of look at the big picture. So, I really like the story. You, you, I mean, everybody laughs about the tree story, but in many ways, it exemplifies what a community newspaper is because you have this deep understanding of the community that nobody else ever could. Uh, would you mind sharing that tree story? Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, when we were speaking at the R2R conference, I, I used uh, the tree story as an example of um, a story that matters to this community, but if it were to be described to maybe an urban community, uh, they wouldn't really understand why it matters. So currently, Memorial Hall, right in the center of town, it's the home of the Blythe Festival. It's a living cenotaph to veterans. Um, it, the courtyard and the building are undergoing major renovations. And one of the aspects of those renovations is a complete remodeling of the courtyard. Now, in the courtyard, there was an, an old tree where uh, that was the site of the lighting of the lights Christmas, and it was being cut down. And if you were to maybe, you know, discuss that with somebody who's used to covering court or crime or murders, hard news, if you told them you were going out to cover the cutting down of a tree, they may not think... They may not see the importance of that, but to this community, that is an important story. And so it's it's all about, for us, it's all about understanding your community, understanding your audience, and knowing what is important to them. And that's where the authenticity comes in. That's where you have to be a member of the community to know that, okay, something matters to me, so it matters to them. You can't be dictating to your readers what you think is important and telling them what you think is important and why they should think it's important. You need to kind of work hand in hand with them. And that worked really well for you guys. I mean, uh, you have quite a string of accolades. So can you tell me a little bit? You're now the best Canadian community newspaper? Uh, yeah, this uh, this year, 2016, we were named the uh, the best newspaper in Canada in our circulation class. That's from the uh, Canadian Community Newspaper Association. Uh, we also received a, a handful of other awards from them, um, best editorial page, best front page. Uh, and we were also not, um, we were also awarded uh, provincially as well for our, for the uh, newspaper general excellence and uh, our website, things like that. But uh, this is the second year that we've been nominated or that we've been recognized 
uh, nationally. We came in second, and then now we've come in first. So certainly nice to get pats on the back like that. <laughs> what was sort of the hardest thing to cover? Ooh. Um, well, I, I think uh, some of the hardest things that we've had to cover over the years kind of get at what you were talking about, you know, really, really divisive issues in the community where we've got counselors who are really big supporters of ours morally, um, you know, but they are forced for one reason or another to make very difficult decisions. So, I mean, when we cover those decisions accurately, um, you know, they may not feel like we're giving the counselor's perspective fair play or that we're not really presenting the issue as accurately as we could have, but we know that we are. And so there is definitely a push and pull on the political spectrum sometimes, but that's just life as a journalist. <laughs> Some of the issues Sean and I talked about are familiar to anybody who worked in a small newsroom. The community ownership structure elevates many of those pressures around self-censorship and pressure that some of the big regional economic players feel they can exert on small town media. But in more traditionally structured media environments, those pressures are all too real. The next story I want to bring to you is an interview with Renske Pin from the island of Curaçao and Brigitte Krakenbaum from the University of Aruba. I met Renske and Bibi on Terschelling, one of the West Frisian islands in the Northern Netherlands, during an International Small Island Studies Association conference that was held there last year. Renske and Bibi collaborated on several studies and projects on Caribbean islands aimed at strengthening the media industry and improving the quality of journalism on those islands. My name is Renske Pin. I'm a scholar from Curaçao and um, I research a lot of topics, uh, social sciences, but and one of them is uh, journalism in small islands. My name is Birgit Krijkenboom. I'm also known as Bibi on the island of Aruba. I'm a lecturer at the University of Aruba and my interests are media and journalism studies in small islands. Yes, um, well our journey started actually in Curaçao, that's uh, why we, we could maybe start there. Five years ago Curaçao was invited to do um, an assessment of the media landscape and that resolved in uh, a big report. We had like a lot of recommendations but one of the big ones was uh, education. Uh, whoever we asked during the interviews, surveys, etc., etc., uh, education was also always coming up, and therefore we were able to uh, get more funding from UNESCO to actually uh, develop um, a media development program, uh, which included several activities, but also a series of uh, master classes. Well, I had the honor to be part uh, in, a, in a small way in the master classes. Uh, as a lecturer, I was invited to, to give one lecture. But I think the most important thing that was uh, um, built there was a connection between the two islands. And Renska and I actually uh, were dreaming by that time to kind of export the success and the research done on Curaçao also to Aruba. So what we did is we uh, came up with a project we called the Pressure Cooker Marathon, a three-day very intensive uh, program where we invited international journalists to be, well, to guide the program actually. And uh, we opened the project to local journalists and media experts, to academics, and especially also young talents. We invited them as well to join in. When you did your study, what was the focus of the study on? 
it is a very broad study. So in Curacao, we did like what you see is actually, if you do that, that there is some sort of desert-like landscape popping up. So in such a small scale, you don't have um, educational uh, programs. You don't have civil society organizations uh, supporting uh, media. You don't have... um, uh, what is called fakbonden, um, trade unions, trade unions, or uh, the laws are lacking behind. We don't have any. any uh, we, we found very little uh, editorial um, statutes or, or, or guidelines or ethical um, national ethical uh, guidelines. Or uh, yeah, it was very little. Um, so in terms or of like uh, the media uh, taking that watchdog role in society. Um, that was very, um, yeah, uh, under pressure, I would say. And so independent press on such a small island where every media outlet, although we have a lot, just to explain to the listeners, maybe it's interesting, we have 160,000 people in a small island, but that we have uh, 28 radio stations, we have six television stations, We ha- we until last year we had eight newspapers, two of them, uh, are now gone, but we still have six, and we have more or less uh, ten um, websites, news websites, and then we have Facebook, which is a very important pillar in our system. So, a lot of media, but still only commercial media. So the independence is uh, is a is a big thing. Self censorship is a big problem in a small scale. Uh, when we were um, implementing the program in a different way, but still based on the same indicators in Aruba, we found uh, during this assessment with these 30 scholars, uh, journalists and young professionals working together for three days, assessing the, their own media landscape based on these indicators, we found more or less the same thing. And that's where, um, actually, I, th- I think the, the program in Aruba was very nice the biggest value of the whole program is actually the, the connecting part, what, what Bibi already mentioned. That, yeah, one of the comments from the, several uh, journalists said it's the first time we actually discuss our profession with each other. Normally, they feel like lonely warriors, but now they notice that okay, I'm not the only one, you know, with the self-censorship issues. That I, that I know that uh, you know I feel the pressure from all kinds of places, and it's not easy to be a journalist in such a small scale. That was the the bottom line. So, one thing that's interesting in your presentation is the was the focus on the watchdog role of the media. Journalism plays all sorts of other roles. Is that a conversation that's there? I think you have a contradiction there. I think if you ask journalists and uh, people working in media, they very much support the watchdog role of journalism, even in our society. And I think they're really trying in their own way to to live up to that. Um, But what you see there is the enormous political and economical pressures, external pressures that that you have there. Um, In addition to uh, this watchdog role, and I think they try to uh, really cover stories, but I think also they they feel the small scale in relationships, they know each other, so self-censorship is is a huge issue there. And in addition to the uh, entertainment function, the social cohesion function, I think they also try to come up with, in a small way, educational programs. Some shows uh, for youth, in which, for example, schools compete on knowledge on the island, uh, those type of... But they're, 
I don't know, they're, they're rare. The role of, of journalism and media is a difficult one, and especially in, in the sense of the watchdog function, yes. Maybe the fact that on the islands there are only commercial media and not community media or a public broadcasting uh, station or something like that. There so educational function of uh, journalism is a bit lost, maybe. But also, and I think that is an important thing that we really want to raise, media literacy. So more the, the side of, of the public and the readers and, and the critical mass as uh, the reception side of journalistic products. And I think there is a, is a... But then we return to education, but in a different sense, not so much about the profession, but about the, the population. Yeah. What is the reason for... I can understand that there is no public broadcasting, for example. Not every country has one. But what is the reason that there is no community-owned media? Or is it just that there is no tradition of it? Or It's actually a very good question. It's a very good question. I don't know. You know, we. It, it's not... The, the thing is... Uh, well, I've mentioned it now for the t third time, but we have a lot of media. So it's not that we don't have a choice, but it's all in the same corner. And that's the thing. And, um, you know, I would think it would be an interesting exercise just, you know, brain picking on, um, you know, deleting it all and then rebuild it. What would be necessary in such a small scale with all these languages you want to have? Like the language is covered, you want to have like a, a cater all different groups in society. So what would be needed? What would be needed to actually build like the utopic uh, media landscape? That would be an interesting thing. What, what you see is that the next generation, they come up with different forms. So digital forms and sometimes you see like the, um, the blogs or the, the, the things happening on Facebook for a new Facebook page with, with, uh, with uh, some sort of more of community stuff happening. So that is an interesting development. What I see is that some students who are studying in the Netherlands uh, are coming up with new initiatives, but they're very small scale and I don't see a lot of activity, unfortunately, on their, on their side. The initiative is there, but uh, how to, to really make it fully function, I think that is a bridge to fall. But, you know, the thing is, this is not something unique for the islands. No. Look at journalism worldwide. There's one thing that we were talking about, how, how to proceed, something structural, and that was one of the things that we were actually discussing also with the University of Aruba. Um, trying to set up an, an incentive fund for journalism and then try to do that in uh, for the six islands. So within the kingdom of the Dutch kingdom, we have six islands in the Caribbean region and they used to be uh, like uh, called the, the Dutch Antilles and now uh, we have a different relationship within the kingdom but still we are connected and I think it could be interesting to see and explore if we could work together setting up this incentive fund and uh, work on media literacy um, work on uh, press innovation because you know worldwide we see this and then uh, it's not our problem only but maybe we can be like a test ground for uh, interesting stuff to, to to just test and innovate in journalism. How is it possible to come up with models that you know would uh, be valid and uh, you know that you would structure it in a way that it actually comes up with a lot uh, enough money to uh, 
proceed with uh, 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 an independent platform for journalism. In addition to that was that we combined scarce resources in the sense that we not only used professionals in the journalistic field but also embedded it in an in a academic uh, environment with, with 10 uh, scholars. We hope actually to build from there and the, the mutual understanding between the two blood groups, if you want to say, um, was important too. And maybe we could work together in the future on certain uh, topics, issues, you know, more from a research perspective on the one hand and a journalistic storytelling side on the other, on the other hand. So um, that could be maybe something that we could explore further. A maybe interesting thought is just to start again with Caribbean Kids News. This used to be an interesting program focusing on the six islands, providing a daily news show for kids. And you have like the education, the literacy, the, then it's all bringing together. And, you know, in, in a way you have to start with the youth and they, you know, they deserve uh, some sort of independent news. So, And it's also educating and for everybody in the island. So that could be interesting starting point. Those stories of struggle to preserve journalism in small communities are all too familiar to small towns across Canada. As the community papers continue to disappear and become ever more stripped of reporting resources by their urban-based parent companies, many towns and regions are turning to community radio as a solution to their media needs. In 2017, I had a chance to visit KCR, Kootenai Co-op Radio, in Nelson, British Columbia. My name is Terry Brennan. I'm the operations manager here at Co-op Radio. And a little story about this building. Um, we bought this seven years ago now. Uh, one of our volunteers was looking for a place where we could have a permanent home because we were in rental places and the landlord decided he needed to do something else. So we were moving, which was horrible for a radio station to have to pick up and like move the studio and build it again. He found this building, he uh, found the financing for it, which is a group of people who hold the mortgage. The bank wouldn't give us money, so we have 11 investors who we pay the mortgage to. And we pay them a little bit better than they'll get in the bank, and the, our mortgage rate's better than we'd be able to get on a, on a mortgage. So it's a lovely little kind of community model for how to, how to finance something like this. We bought and renovated this building for $150,000, and now it's our, our forever home. Yeah. So, should we walk around? Sure. Okay. Uh, control room, Studio A. Um, this is where our 80-plus volunteer programmers uh, do their shows. We're all volunteer-run and volunteer on-air programmers, and they come in here every week and do their show. What we, kind of shows do they do? Oh, it's very eclectic. We have uh, we have got a number of spoken word shows. Uh, kind of a morning news magazine and a uh, Mayan astrology show, um, other kind of talk showy things, lots of music. Right now, this this is just kind of a eclectic rock show. Just had a traditional music show on, bluegrass, hard rock, hip hop, pretty much the entire breadth of the musical spectrum. Classical music, jazz. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really up to pro like our the people who come in with show ideas. They're the ones who determine what kind of programming we do. We don't really have a, you know, we don't have a, a genre. We're not like a, a type of station, like most community stations. It's just what people bring to the table. Awesome. We have That Studio by Catherine. Catherine McGrath, one of our programmers. Just wow. finished her trad show. <laughs> we have another production room in here. 
where we do all of our uh, pre-produced, people come in and do a pre-produced show. We make a fair bit of money selling sponsorship. It's a big part of our, it's about a third of our revenue. Uh, so we produce uh, spots in here and local businesses are great. They love to support us. And they also realize that our listeners are probably are people who are going to want to shop at their store. So it's, it's a big part of what we do. It's really great that we can actually do uh, sponsorship on air ads. Um, it's yeah, it's a big, big part of that. And music library, uh, the ever growing beast of CDs. Uh, yeah, constantly trying to figure out what to do with them all. And we've been recently been getting rid of old stuff that doesn't get played. So we're keeping it fresh and we still get a lot of CDs, um, sent to us from Canadian musicians mainly. Yeah. That's up here. We have an office. Uh, and then downstairs we have a performing a performing space and, uh, slash meeting space, a third studio, and our kind of equipment room where all the broadcast gear is. How long have you been here? Uh, I've been working here about 15 years. Okay. And the radio station? Uh, first meeting was in 1997 and went on the air in 1999, uh, February of 1999 uh, for a 30-day broadcast. And we did three of those before we got our full-time license in the fall of 2000 is when we went on air full-time. Our cooperative, yeah, we have uh, over five, six, around 600 active members. 5,000-ish members over the years, people who have like gotten a membership and maybe have moved left town and no longer keep a, their, their membership active. We do an annual membership drive which is uh, a big part of our, another big part of our revenue. La this year, this spring, we did a membership drive to get co-op, our co-op members to renew or get new co-op members on. And we raised $20,000 uh, this spring doing that. So yeah, people see the value of having a locally controlled radio station. And that's why they keep coming back and getting memberships. And also with, with memberships, that's kind of where we, um, people come through that and then they get the ability to do a show. They have access to the training we have, the tools we have, the equipment we have after getting their, their co-op membership. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Myers is our sponsorship coordinator and outreach coordinator. So she's kind of the, she's the public face of co-op radio. And also, yeah, and makes us a lot of money. And there's a third administrative manager who's in the office right now, Prudence Breton. Oh, Prudence Elise Breton. And we have, hi, and we have a on contract programming coordinator. So, how big an area do you just cover uh, Nelson, or how far can people hear you? A little bit, a little bit outside of Nelson. So right now we we actually have four transmitters. We have one here in Nelson. We have one on the east shore of Kootenay Lake, and two in the Slocan Valley. So with uh, because of the, the the way the mountainous terrain is, it's really hard to get outside of like the little, whatever the basin you're in, the little bowl. So these transmitters that we have cover other areas up Kootenay Lake and up Slocan Valley. So we can be heard from New Denver in the north side of, north end of Slocan Valley, down the Slocan Valley, and then pretty much all up the Kootenay Lake. And, so, uh, and on the internet. We've been broadcasting, we've been on the internet since the day we started. So uh, we get a lot of people listening to our web stream. 
how is it different to run a co-op station in a rural area from other forms of media? Do you feel sense of responsibility that's different? How, how does it feel to be here? Um, well, I, a, num a number of things come to mind. One is that we provide uh, this opportunity for people to have a voice on air that they wouldn't have, that they they're not going to get in any other kind of media format, you know, with you know commercial radio, they're not going to get a show on commercial radio. They're not going to write an article in the local paper, but we have 80 people who can come in uh, once a week and have a voice on air and broadcast to the world. Um, and I've seen some incredible transformations like personal transformations that people have gone through feeling, getting a sense of accomplishment and achievement about like learning how to do this and feeling good about doing radio. You know, it, it's, it, it has changed people's lives. That's one thing. Um, the other thing I think is like it, we, there's a community of like programmers and people who are involved with the radio station. Like we have, we have a culture here that's Kootenai Co-op Radio culture community and people know each other through that and relate to each other as being kind of fellow supporters or programmers or, you know, members of the co-op. Um, so there's a, I, I, I think, really do believe we've created like a, you know, a community within Nelson of, of people who value what we do here. The, and I think the, and the last thing is, and we struggle with this because it's really hard to do well, is news and local spoken word stuff. It's so labor intensive and so resource heavy. And, you know, even though we make a, we make money doing these, you know, membership drives and, and selling spots. We, we are not flush and we don't have the finances to pay, you know, producers, people who can look for stories, people who can do that kind of work. So we, we do what we can on a shoestring. Um, but that's definitely something that, that I wish we could do more of. And that's so that there, there's a, that feeling is of wanting to do more of that local, news and what's important to people with the, especially with the loss of that with um other radio stations where you know there's less and less of that with commercial radio where that local voice is heard and 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 so we i think we have that responsibility stephanie yes okay hi i'm stephanie myers i'm the sponsorship and outreach coordinator for kootenai co-op radio what do I do? Um, I spend a lot of time, um, I, I called it wandering the streets in quotation marks. Um, so I'm popping into businesses that already are sponsors of Kootenai Co-op Radio. So the way sponsorship works with Kootenai Co-op Radio and probably with other community radio stations is that businesses sign on to have, we promote basically that the business is a supporter of Kootenai Co-op Radio. We don't do things like a commercial radio station would go out and say, so-and-so has the best, you know, borscht or whatever, ever. We don't do that sort of stuff. We do promote that they're, you know, good business people, you know, they support the community, that kind of thing. Um, so it's a little bit different model when a commercial radio station does. Um, so when I'm wandering the streets, I'm going into businesses that are supporters. I'm thanking them. I'm seeing how things are going. I'm possibly shopping there because I do, I, I, I like to get sponsors of the radio station of businesses 
that I already use anyways, or that I know have a good model for how they, they interact in the community. I'm not gonna, for instance, go down to the mall and knock on Walmart's door and see if Walmart wants to be a sponsor of Kootenai Co-op Radio. A, I wouldn't know who to talk to because they're just a big cloudy mess. Um, so so small based businesses kind of are what we're looking for. Um, and then so I'm also doing for outreach I'm doing stuff like um, during the membership drive I'm booking um, booths out in the in the community. I'm booking looking at events and um, also sponsoring um, festivals stuff like that getting then the word out for different festivals around town and then of course getting our logo on those festivals posters and promotional material so it, it, so when people look at a poster for an event, they're like, oh, Kootenai Co-op Radio has got something to do with that event, as we should, because we are the community radio station. And how has that been working over the years? Um, it's, I think it, it fluctuates depending on who's doing it. Um, the first person who was doing this job, um, the, the folder I use in the computer is still named after him. Um, and he uh, is a kind of an introverted guy. When I, when I met him, I was like, wow, you do sales. It was really... And when he was doing it, it was so interesting because he was selling a product that didn't exist. He was starting... When they were starting the radio station, people were like what is this thing? Is this going to, I'm going to give you money and I, and, and what's going to happen exactly now I've got, I mean, I've got a very substantial thing that I'm selling. So people know it's like, they know very few people. If you talk to them around town, don't know what Kootenai Cop Radio is. Um, so trying to sell that is much easier than trying to sell this thing that he was trying to sell. I can't imagine how he even went about it, but he did, he did a great job. Um, and we've got, we've got some sponsors that have been sponsors of the radio station from the beginning. You know, so, so we've got a great re reputation with them and they've got, you know, and we like shopping in their stores. <laughs> and so there you have it. From struggling with how to stay afloat and do journalism to interesting funding models that put community first and everything else second, the story of rural media is complex and important. And if you were in doubt why you might need local reporters, Stephanie Mayer from KCR shared this story that I want to leave you with. Um, so we had a bit of a situation here in Nelson um, around mid-July. Um, it was it's been a really bad forest fire season in, in British Columbia, so people were tense. People are tense. We're tense all a lot of summer long. Um, it was really dry, uh, and then there was a fire um, close to Nelson, just five kilometers outside Nelson, and it um, it it threatened one of the um, trans transformers. The, so the Nelson Hydro, which runs the power for all of the city, shut down all of the power to all of the city, like, right away. And and farther out into the city as well. So, like, something like 50,000 people lost power, like, right away. Um, middle of the afternoon, um, hot, hot day, uh, and nobody really knew what was going on. There was a little clip on CBC that said... There's a fire five kilometers outside of Nelson. And people are like, well, five kilometers, that's really close. Um, and we've got the ability here at the station because we just do. I think I think most community radio stations do. We have a generator in the back. So um, I came down, got Terry, Terry Kim, the operations manager. Um, we started the generator and we went on and we started doing um, a live broadcast. And because the way the power was shut off, it also shut off the CBC tower. So they weren't getting, none of the other two commercial radio stations in town were broadcasting, and CBC was not covering it because our CBC 
the closest CBC we get really is Kelowna, which is five hours away. So a little fire outside Nelson, five hours from them. They don't really care that much. Uh, so we were doing a lot of broadcasting for about an hour and a half or something like that. So we were reading things like we were going on the internet and searching, trying to find out like on Facebook and, you know, going on the Nelson fire department, all that kind of stuff. phoning the fire department, asking them what's going on, phoning the city of Nelson, asking them what's going on. Um, and then we we're also reading, um, the regional district of central Kootenays has this sort of grab and go kit. So we we're reading off the list of what to take for your grab and go kit, get your, you know, six meters of rope and your duct tape and your this much water and all that and we got so much feedback from that because so many people were in their cars at that time of day they weren't getting the other all of a sudden their radios if they weren't weren't listening to co-op radio to start with their radios went dead so they you know hit seek and they picked up us because we were the only ones um transmitting and yet we got so much feedback from that like i had friends who were actually being evacuated because of that fire and she said even though we were being evacuated and i was super super stressed listening to you guys on the radio i was killing myself laughing because we were just being a bit ridiculous and also informative as much as we could be at the same time so it was great it was really good feedback to know that that many people listen to co-op radio and that that we are you know needed and wanted here in the area felt good and that's it for this episode we heard from sean loglin from the citizen in blythe ontario Renske Pin and Brigitte Krakenbaum from Caribbean islands of Curacao and Aruba, and Terry Brennan and Stephanie Meyers from Kutni Co-op Radio in Nelson in British Columbia. I am Boyan Fürst, and you just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. This show is a partnership between Rural Policy Learning Commons, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Harris Center. We record the show at the Harris Center at the Signal Hill campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland. You can find all the previous episodes of the show on your favorite podcasting app or at our website www.ruralrootspodcasts.com That's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com You can also find us on National Campus and Community Radio Program Exchange and hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry rural roots, just let them know or contact us directly. Until next time, I'm Boyan Fierstein.